Let's talk about sex, baby. Um, yeah, that's the topic today. So that's what we're going to talk about. So um, be warned. Uh, and if the kids are in the car, be ready for some conversations. Um, yeah, welcome back to your Sunday dose of Jesus's dope as Jesus jumps into a conversation that we all love and don't love to talk about. Uh, we love the topic, the idea, uh, the gift that God gave us, and it is uh, awkward. Um, or maybe like me, uh, I grew up um, surrounded by sexual abuse and brokenness, um, all kinds of things that impacted and affected me and family and other people. And so, um, like, I love this topic because what Jesus is going to talk about here and elsewhere uh, is actually a, a great source of hope and healing in understanding the idea behind sex and then obviously how it has um, been so kind of warped and misused. Um, but but Jesus presents us on so many topics, but especially when we get here in the Sermon on the Mount around uh, how we view sex and sexuality, that there's a higher way, a better way, and that um, that, you know, for some of us, it's like, just overly sexualized and maybe for others yours yours has been more suppressed or repressed from traumatic experiences or shame and judgment and either way Jesus has some hope and a better way for us to move forward in understanding those things so let's jump into it uh, Matthew 27 through 30 is where we have landed and here's what Jesus says you have heard it said all right and he's been doing this so he's going to take something they already know and have opinions about and there was lots of teachings and cultural norms and values around, and he's going to flip it. So he says, you've heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. One of the uh, one of the big 10 commandments. But I tell you, this is verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, he's speaking to guys, but this includes women, um, but he's speaking to uh, in particular, the religious elite, which were men. Um, and they all, you know, just like the murder one, they're like, Hey, I don't commit adultery. And he says, I tell you, if you've looked lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. Uh, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. No, that is quite a statement. Um, like, like the others, it is very drastic. And uh, I'll remind you that I don't think Jesus um, wants us to actually gouge our eyes out or cut our hand off. He is trolling the religious people of the time, that if you think you can be so perfect um, and, and live without grace and forgiveness and me, then, you know, go all the way with it. And it's better to gouge your own eye out than to keep stumbling. If you're dependent upon your own strength and, and kind of willpower, it's better to cut your hand off. Um, but he doesn't actually mean to do that. So FYI, um, that, that would not, he's not being prescriptive here. Um, he's exaggerating to make a point 
Just because you haven't committed adultery, just like you haven't maybe committed murder, that is a low bar for who who God is and the ideas that he's given us and how to relate and treat each other. And so he jumps into this topic of sex, of lust. Um, and there, I mean, there's always been issues. As long as there have been humans with hormones, there's been issues around this where um, either there's like the social pressures and thoughts around appropriate ages to begin being sexually active to what does actual sexual activity or like losing your virginity mean, um, all the way to, you know, abuse and pedophilia and, and ways that sex is used to really damage and hurt people. And in our culture today, like one, this has always been an issue. So this is not like new, uh, we didn't figure it out or make it up. Um, we today deal with unique difficulties around this because of our digital age and access to things and privacy on phones and other ways that we can kind of hide or struggle silently and alone. But it is not unique to struggle with lust or sex um, or have sex be used and mis misused and abused in our lives. But in our culture today, it's really fascinating because there is this giant contradiction, and most of you will probably be able to relate with this, um, that according to our culture as a whole, so not talking about Christianity or trying to follow Jesus or like trying to even understand what he's saying here in Matthew 5, but just as a culture, our view of sex is on one hand, that it is this super important piece of somebody's identity and a human right that must be defended and is this incredibly important thing. But then on the other hand, sex is just no big deal, casual, can be transactional, and just hook up and move on. It's very just like, well, I think transactional is a really good way of thinking about it. And you can just do what you want with who you want, when you want, with consent, of course. But so culturally, it's like we have these two sort of contradictory views of it's no big deal and it's a really big deal. It's um, it's do what you want, no one can deny you, and um, it's just it's baffling and a contradiction. But the same sort of contradiction, contradiction and tension exists inside the church. And if you grew up in church, you'll probably totally be able to relate with me on this. And we've done maybe slightly better in the past few decades, but we have a long way to go still. That on one hand, there's this Christian view of sex that it is sacred and beautiful and a gift from God. And then there's this simultaneous kind of other view uh, that it is very inappropriate. It's, it's wrong to talk about. It's gross. And we should never talk. You know, like uh, I grew up in just absolute silence around sexual stuff from the church and absolute overload of sexual stuff from TV and movies. And of course, my moron elementary and middle school friends who they were teaching me, they were essentially discipling me, they were helping shape and form my ideas and understandings around sex, and its value and its place in my life. And the church, unfortunately, was incredibly absent and silent on this, um, except to make sure I knew it was horrible and wrong, and you shouldn't do it, which doesn't serve us well. Uh, especially when we go through puberty. And then now we've got, uh, you know, smartphones where we can look at and watch anything we want at any time with total anonymity. That it, it just doesn't serve us well to be so shaped and formed. In fact, think about it like this. Uh, our kids today, 
Uh, right, and I'm raising three sons, so I care a ton about this topic because of the damage and the struggles that I've had in my own life around it, and wanting them to have uh, at least more openness around it. But um, my own kids and and other kids, and maybe even you and I, we are more likely to search on Google what you know to find out information around sexual stuff, around safe sex, around. Um, how to even have sex or perform sexual acts. My kids are, are far more likely to search that on Google than to come talk to me about it because, well, it's awkward and uncomfortable and uh, there can be shame around it and all kinds of stuff. But, but think about that. That means my kids are more likely to trust Google's algorithms and God knows who wrote what than to talk about it. So the way I've we've tried to parent is be very open and talk constantly about it. But I think that's even true for us, that we are more likely to Google things and and be so formed and shaped in our opinions and our values around sex and what it is or should be or shouldn't be because of movies and, and the culture around us than we are God's word uh, or maybe even a Google algorithm more than like, what does Jesus have to say? What was God's idea? Which that is the most important question. And that's why I think Jesus jumps into it, because it's an issue everyone can relate to, um, even if maybe they don't want to talk about it. But to have sexual desires to be human, to want to be loved is human, to want to share intimately with another person is human. So it's not weird, it's not abnormal, um, and kind of the prude, uh, suppress, shut it down stuff from the from the church world has been a, a real major disservice. Now, oddly enough, God's not ashamed of sex. It was his idea. I don't know if you know that. He, uh, we didn't make it up. <laughs> like We figured it out in puberty, and we're like, oh my God, don't let God know. Uh, he went out of his way to make uh, sexual experiences, um, orgasms in particular, feel ridiculously good. Like That was his idea, not ours. And if sex and this is often a Christian kind of prudish view, if sex is simply for reproduction, then then God really messed up because he made it way too amazing to just simply be about that. So it is about something more, and not only is God the inventor of it, created it to be this amazing experience for us uh, as this great kind of gift, um, it's also something that he's not ashamed of in the sense that he talks about it quite a bit in the scriptures. And uh, in the Old Testament in particular, there are two books of the Bible that go out of their way to lean heavily into kind of taboo topics that uh, religious people, pure people should not maybe think about or talk about too much. And and the one of them, one of them is, is the book of Job, which is about disillusionment with God and spiritual pain, like being angry with God is very taboo. Are you allowed to do that? The book of Job suggests you are. And um, that in your honest questioning and, and doubts and, and frustrations, in disillusionment where like you lose an illusion about God and come to know more the reality of God, which is always painful, that he invites that and he draws closer to you and you can learn a lot through it. That's the book of Job. Taboo though. The second one is is the Song of Solomon's, which is a whole book of the Bible dedicated to this topic of, of being attracted to another person, to erotic love, to expression, to sex. And so the Bible's not ashamed of it. Uh, we just have been. And, um, you know, now maybe you've had only like innocent purity and really great sexual experiences later in life and high five for you. But most of us 
learned the wrong way, have been shaped and formed by our own internal natural desires that are opposite of what God wants, uh, which is true about any topic, but especially sex. And most of us have been um, harmed by it. We had sex way too early or way too often, or it led to, um, you know, diseases and frustrations and um, hurt and pain. Um, It led to pregnancies. It led to, um, you know, especially when with the way sex is so formed in our culture, it's all just erotic passion. There's no commitment. There's no covenant. There's no love um, to support it. And then in our culture, it's also so selfish. It's about me getting what I want. And you lose so much of the beauty of what sex is supposed to be and can be. Um, Now, Jesus uses the word lust. So you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Again, pretty low bar, like murder. Um, In fact, I don't know um, of anyone that thinks adultery is a good idea. Like through most cultures, through most of time, as just a innate human understanding, adultery damages, adultery hurts. It takes a committed, promised, loyal relationship, and it fractures and breaks it. And I know some incredible marriages that have uh, been damaged by adultery and chosen forgiveness and reconciliation and have incredible marriages today. But, um, but I know far more that have been completely destroyed by it. Families and kids broken by it. And so Jesus is like, look, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Good job. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, again, this still counts for women, but when Jesus uses the word lust, it's important to to realize this is not like you had a bad thought. Having a bad thought is not lust. Lust is an action. Lust is where you have taken maybe a bad thought, a stimulus, um, uh, an image, a moment you can't stop thinking about from a movie or someone that you're really attracted to, and you want to like consume that person. You want to consume that person's physicality for your own self-focus and gratification. That's where lust gets wrong. Now, lust, I mean, most often is around sexual stuff, but but lust is similar to um, jealousy, envy, and coveting, where you're like lusting after something else as if it is the answer to this deep need in your heart. So lust, in, in a sense, is like hunger, And you need to eat something in order to satisfy that hunger. Sadly, hunger returns. Lust is very similar, just like coveting and other things. We are looking to something, maybe without even realizing it, in sex or in a a relationship um, to please another person or to be pleased by another person that will answer something that's like deeper inside of us. And unfortunately, it can't. And so uh, lust in its toxic and unhealthy forms and its selfish like self-focused gratification forms is very much just a cycle. You lust, you you find ways to act out upon it, whether it's sex with self or sex with another. And then that can so often just generate more emptiness because it doesn't arrive or doesn't deliver on what you hoped, um, even if you didn't realize it. Or you... Um, you... Like it... it, it um, I don't know why I'm not able to think right now. Um, I don't know what I was saying. Anyway, lust is bad. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Lust doesn't, lust doesn't satisfy. That's what I'm saying. Lust 
um, you know, it, it can be acted upon. It leads to emptiness or shame or or guilt, and then that leads us even deeper into this need for something that is so often we look back to lust for. Um, and so again, Jesus is picking this as this very obvious social taboo, and the Jewish people then, just like Christians now and religious people, we always have this idea of like worse sins. So adultery, that's a worse sin than maybe just a lustful thought. And and it is in the sense that the consequence of adultery versus a lustful thought are worlds different, right? But they they still are sin. They still are something outside of what God wants for us. There's something that that leads us away from him, not, not closer to him, no matter how socially acceptable or unacceptable they might be to the people around us. And that's another reason I think we don't talk about a lot of sex because we're afraid of just being judged. So we just keep it in our heads or maybe, you know, we just acquire little bits of information here and there and searches on the internet and things that inform us on what sex is. And Jesus wants to inform us wholly as a whole person viewed by him um, in the way that he designed and created you to think about this in the way that he does. And so when Jesus says, I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in his heart. What what he's saying is that his sexual ethic is so much higher than mine and yours. His ethic around our sexuality, around the beauty and the gift and the, the passion and the pleasure of it, that it, his ethic around it and parameters around it and appropriateness of it is so much higher than our natural tendency and our cultural norms, right? I don't know any, I don't think I've ever met a guy, um, and, and we've talked about these kind of things, that we are naturally monogamous. We grow up just so wanting to get committed in a married relationship and stay monogamous our whole life. We don't, it's just not natural, for many women, it can be very similar. Um, I don't totally know because I'm not a woman, um, in case you didn't know. But um, this cycle of like what, what Jesus has for us is meant to interrupt the cycle of lust we often find ourselves in that never satisfies. And that's why, um, as an example, people that are addicted to porn, and there's really fascinating and also very sad research around addictions to porn, porn turns into ever-increasing forms of fetishes, of dominance, um, of more destructive behaviors, of things that lead ultimately to violence and and addiction. And addiction is real. Um, And if you've not had the experience of addiction, it can be really hard to understand. Like an alcoholic as an example, they think about it through the lens of that I have an allergy to alcohol. So someone who's not an addict can have a beer, um, but I, an alcoholic, if I have a beer, it turns into 20 beers and really bad things. And the same thing is true around lustful thoughts and fantasy in the mind and porn and the like chemical um, potency of what's released in our brain and our body through lust and sexual acting out is way like so much more potent and addictive than cocaine and other drugs. Like the neurology on it is really fascinating. Again, scary because it's so misused and abused, but also really beautiful in what God did when he gave us this ability to be sexual um, and and to have this kind of intimate, vulnerable experience with another human. And so in the same way that an alcoholic can have an allergy to alcohol, um, 
many people, and, and it's something, it's the way I identify as, as a sexual addict, because it's like I have an allergy to lust. And it is not just um, a problem. It's not just like something that makes me feel crappy. It is a danger. And if you're someone who's ever, like maybe the word addiction seems very, um, I don't know, intimidating or, or too dramatic, but if you have uh, behaviors that are compulsive and maybe ever more dangerous or have caused you to cross boundaries you once swore you never would, uh, there is hope and there's a way of viewing it as an addiction that can be really, really empowering and helpful. Um, so uh, think about this. Sex is the most vulnerable thing two humans can do together. To be naked around anybody is very vulnerable. Um, but then for two humans to choose to become naked together because of their attraction and their love and their like and their erotic and their committed sense of each other or to each other, it is this, I mean, this is going to sound like a really bad pun, but it literally is the climax of a human experience as far as intimacy goes. Physically, it's the most intimate, vulnerable, and powerful shared experience two people can have. And then, I mean, just as beautiful, it's like, I remember my wife getting pregnant all three times, and it just is the most ridiculously miraculous, cool thing that we get to co-create. Uh, granted, I participated very little. I gave very little to the whole project. She had to do it for nine months. Her whole body went through a metamorphosis that was unbelievable to watch and to see as she grew life, and then she gave birth to it. And it, it I mean, just purely miraculous. I mean, I say, you know, sex is the most intimate, climactic kind of thing. Obviously, that's what an orgasm is. But it's also like the pinnacle of, of, of a relational connection of safety. It's the ultimate expression of safety, of wholeness, of connectedness. Um, but then that it can produce life and, and seeing my kids born. Uh, I mean, that's the best experience I've ever had in life. Um, and I'm, sex doesn't compare. I'm glad it gets to be part of it. And I'm glad having a healthy sex life is something God wants for us. Again, he created us this way. Um, and so uh, sex is the most vulnerable thing. And then because it's so powerful and sacred and amazing, God, God went out of his way to make it amazing and to set parameters for us. And so I've, I've always heard this analogy, and I think it's really good that uh, sex is like um, a fire. And it is powerful, and it is beautiful, and it is mesmerizing, and it is helpful, and it is awesome. And it's really dangerous. And if you have a fire in a fireplace with the right kind of parameters, the right kind of boundaries, it is dynamic and amazing. But if, if it's outside of that fireplace, it'll burn the whole house down. It'll destroy your whole life. And many people have experienced this. And it, you know, when you think of it from the scriptural story of like good versus evil, God created everything great and good, and then it's gotten warped and messed up. Something so beautiful as sex to be warped and twisted and abused and misused is just part of living in a, in a fallen world. And for some of us, it's learning to restrain and pull back into the boundaries and parameters of God to live healthy in a sexual way. For others, it's been so repressed and oppressed and abused and shut down that, you know, to be 
asexual and have no sexual desire is um, or can be just as destructive, especially if you're married. To have a sexless marriage is not really a marriage. Um, I don't know, that might sound too extreme and there's all kinds of abuses and issues and I don't know your whole story and everybody else's. All I know is that Jesus' ethic is higher than ours and his view and the sacredness of the gift and its power is so beautiful we shouldn't run from it. Um, we should lean in and learn to, to heal, to be whole, um, to reconcile our view to his. Um, so marriage is meant to be sacred. Um, you can read it in Matthew 19, Jesus mentions, again, he is the one that created uh, this. So while our culture has all kinds of different views and opinions and contentious things around porn, which, you know, I, I don't often hear too many people try to defend porn because it's often so male-focused domineering over women, and it's incredibly selfish. Um, but at the same time, many people just like, it's not that big a deal. Don't, nobody cares. And it's, um, you know, it just gets us off track from what, what does God really want? And how do we view it as the sacred thing? And Jesus defines it um, as sex being only healthy and leading to flourishing when it's inside the covenant and commitment of marriage that protects it. So it's not broken and damaged and between a man and a woman. Um, that's who God created on purpose, um, not by accident, not by um, being flippant, like he made our, our reproductive organs and the pleasure of sex all to fit together and work together. It's his design, and it requires a lot of self-control and mutual submission to one another. Um, so let's keep going. Um, we'll come back to the gouging eyes out stuff. Uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, this is verse 29 again, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now, is he serious? Yes and no. <laughs> I've already said no in the sense he doesn't actually mean cut off your hand or gouge out your eyes. But yes, in that He's really serious about sin. And he is really serious. Jesus is very serious about how sin separates us from him and ourselves and other people. And it damages us and it destroys things. And he was so serious about it. Um, he was also just as serious about forgiveness. So serious about it, he's willing to die for it, to show us the value and the worth, the cost of sin, but the worth of forgiveness to you and I. And, um, and so here's a way to, I think, to helpfully think of this. Um, many times, especially if you grew up in church world, um, people are wondering, well, is sex wrong? And exactly what, like how many bases can I round with a girlfriend or a boyfriend before I sin? Or is masturbation wrong? That's one that's asked uh, a lot, um, which I want to suggest are all the wrong questions. Um, you know, if you grew up in youth group like I did, the questions were always like, how far is too far? Um, and, you know, how many things can we sexually do with someone else before it's really like bad and God hates us? Um, which it's all the wrong way of thinking about it. Here, here's a better way, all right? Um, that if you think of a continuum, on one side you have the, the typical Christian church view of sex, which is all fear-based. It's fear sex, fear anybody doing it, fear if you have sex before marriage, fear if you think bad thoughts, fear, 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 fear. 
and it it just is very kind of repressive or trying to ignore something so internal and powerful inside of us. And then on the other side of the continuum is kind of the non-Christian worldview of just absolute freedom. Do what you want, whenever you want. And I think there's a healthy middle ground that Jesus is inviting us to. So you've got fear on one side, freedom on the other side, and in the middle, the word form, formation. See, what Jesus is primarily, whether we're talking about sex or something else, primarily focused on is how he's forming us back into the kind of the original form or into his form, like who he was is who we should be. And the question isn't like, is sex wrong? Or let's, let's talk about masturbation. I think that's a more practical one. This, this view of like having sex with self and not being that big of a deal. And for most people, you can't do it without lust. And so it creates issues. And some people are like, well, what if my spouse doesn't care? And it's like, well, I, I don't know. I think the question's not, is it right or wrong? The question is, what is that forming you into? And there's not like an easy answer to it. It's, it's something to really like wrestle with um, so that you can have like a, a, a biblical view, a Jesus-centered view that's not all about suppression and repression and fear and trying to run and deny something, though self-control is necessary. And it's not just freedom, do whatever the heck you want, no big deal, God doesn't really care, or as long as you're not hurting anyone in whatever ways you would learn to justify that. It's not, neither of those are great answers. Jesus wants wants you to learn to ask ourselves questions that lead to wisdom. And wisdom always starts with God at the center, asking what is best, not right and wrong, not simplistic views and rules to follow. The better question around something like masturbation is what is it forming you into? And, and a better question than like, should I swipe right? Or should I watch porn? Or can I watch porn? Or what's wrong with sleeping with them, etc. The question's really about what is that forming you into? And here, and especially for younger people, or if you're not married, this is so, so, so important. Because um, better, better than why can't you, you know, do whatever you want whenever you want. The question is, what makes you think, assuming that you want to be married in a committed, monogamous, covenanted, sexually healthy and beautiful relationship and marriage? What makes you think that you can act upon your sexual desires at any given moment, um, and in particular look at porn and have sex with self and do these other things, what makes you think you can do these things thousands of times in self-gratifying, self-seeking pleasure, and then all of a sudden just turn that off on your wedding day and look at your about-to-be spouse and commit to be you know, faithful and true and pure and in a covenant with them and monogamous and love them for the rest of their life when nobody else will be swiping right on them anymore? What makes you think you can just turn that off? And so that's why it's a, it's a wiser question to go, what's it forming you into? Is it making you more of the person God wants you to be, who's more loving and more has more capacity for the service of others? Or is it turning you more selfish and inward? Now, wisdom is not about just what can I get away with? The question's, how's it making you more or less like Jesus? And so um, I've got this great quote, and some of you maybe have heard me teach before. I, I've read this before because I love that C.S. Lewis talks about masturbation um, because C.S. Lewis is one of those people like in a sermon or a church, like if you just quote C.S. Lewis, like no one can argue, like he's super smart. And so there's these letters um, that C.S. Lewis was writing to a guy named uh, Keith uh, Mason. And he was writing to him, kind of discipling him. 
And in one of the letters, this topic of, of masturbation comes up. And C.S. Lewis says it in a really smart way, but a really beautiful way that I think is helpful. Um, and then I'll stop talking about masturbation. We can wrap up thinking about this as a whole. But here's C.S. Lewis. For me, the real evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite which, in lawful use, leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality in that of another, and finally in children, and even grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no woman can rival. Among those shadowy brides, he is always adored, always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost the main work of life is to come out of ourselves, out of our little dark prisons we are all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided which retard this process. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. Now, C.S. Lewis is really brilliant. Um, and he says that in a far more um, academic and beautiful way than I could talk about it, but I love that because, you know, it's, it's seeing that the, the thing, especially in, in, in lust and that, is about loving yourself. And that, that all of us following Jesus, it's about us becoming more like him and more in the service of other people, not hiding in the recesses and the darkness of our own self and emptiness that tends to just cycle upon itself. And so the question for you and I is, um, if you are married, uh, where do you need more healing and wholeness around the topic of sex and your sexuality? Where do you as a couple need to continue to grow, um, to continue to practice this incredibly sacred, beautiful, amazing, pleasurable thing that God gave us? And if you're not married, the question for you is, well, one, and this is another thing the church does so weird all the time. It's like, if you're not married, something's wrong with you, which actually the Apostle Paul says quite the opposite. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. That the first real question isn't who should you marry? It's should you even marry? Um, but that's for particular people who have kind of a gift, but they are just as sexual as someone who's married. They are still fully man or fully woman and fully able to be intimate and connected to God and to other people just in a different way. And so often we see the actual just sex, like the, the um, intercourse as like the expression of our sexuality, which it's not, it's just part of it. And you can be wholly healthy and sexual and never have sex with another person. Um, but maybe for you, it's that, that you don't ever want to have sex because it's been so damaged and hurt in your life. Uh, and maybe your next step is some therapy or to come back to what Jesus is saying here and go help me.
Like, I, I don't, I don't know what to do with this high standard you have and the way it's been used and abused in my life. But if you're a young person, a non-married person, and, and even a married person, it's just, it is about mutual submission to the spouse you don't yet have. It is about self-control and, um, and learning to live into the wholeness, not, not ashamed of who we are in our private life, but fully living into the wholeness of who God's called us to be. And I'll say as someone who's been married for 20 years, my wife and I, even though I said I'm a sexual addict, I'm uh, addicted to sex, but I've only ever had sex with my wife. I was a virgin when I got married. It's part of why I got married so young, because I was really unhealthy and had issues and I thought marriage would fix it. I didn't, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have said it that way, but that that's what I've learned to understand about myself. But um, being married for 20 years, like there's nothing boring about growing in intimacy and connection over time. Um, there's been, you know, it's not like sex gets worse or more boring or something. It actually becomes more and more amazing and connective between two people connected to each other. So know that there's hope. Know that this this way that Jesus is is kind of pitching here to you and I is not to be restrictive and keep us from having fun, but rather for us to live inside our created, designed um, sexuality in a way that's really life-giving and pleasurable and amazing for the lifetime of our marriages. And um, anything outside of that, Jesus says, it just starts to form us into something he doesn't want and isn't going to serve us well. So I don't know what your next step is, um, but uh, yeah, sex is awesome. So try to protect it.